For some time now, in several lessons, including last week, we have centered our study around a very, very important, vitally important subject, and that is the subject of, of discipline, church discipline. We've looked at the procedure that is now being undertaken by the church here to seek to reclaim those who have gone astray. Before I get into this lesson today, I want to mention that we have determined that on Wednesday night and the following Wednesday night, as a culmination of our study, that it might be good for us to look at the Returning to Truth uh, video that I was privileged to do a few years ago at World Video Bible School. We've mentioned this before, and some of you have uh, actually had copies of this DVD, but we thought it would be profitable perhaps to view it as a part of our Wednesday video series, and then we'll conclude after these two lessons for the next two Wednesday nights with the series by Kyle Butt. There's one more in that. We'll be doing that, the Lord willing, uh, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. But we thought it might be helpful for families, for friends, who have those who are away from us and whom we are lovingly and patiently trying to bring home to their first love, that this might be a tool that you might be able to use uh, to encourage them to sit down and view it as an effort to avoid the withdrawal of fellowship that will inevitably have to come based upon what the scriptures teach us so that we can avoid that and rejoice with these precious souls, hopefully, who will respond and come home to their first love. These two lessons are entitled, Have You Considered? and Second Thoughts, the second lesson. And it's based strictly upon, more or less, my coming into someone's home and sitting down and speaking one-to-one with them. But as we do this, it also provides a reinforcement of the scriptural material that we have been covering in the series of lessons on the lost sheep and the efforts to reclaim those lost sheep. And perhaps it will encourage you to utilize these DVDs in an effective way. And since I was privileged to do them, and I don't really relish looking at myself on video, but I'll sit through it for your sake. Uh, I'm a much younger Jim Dearman at that time, but it's not that. I just don't feel, I'm not one that likes to hear oneself or look at oneself. Uh, we're all kind of that way, I think. But it was a project that meant a great deal to me because I had at one time been unfaithful to the Lord. And I mentioned that in the series, that I know where these people are because I was once there. But thanks be to God, I was given the time and the opportunity and the encouragement and the influence, especially of a godly wife who obeyed the gospel of Christ. And because of her sweet heart and loving heart and desire to serve the Lord, a wake-up call to me to come home. And so when I plead with people through this video, I'm not pleading from a perspective that I don't know something about. And I freely admit that, though I'm not proud of it. And so I would like for us to make an effort, if, if at all possible, to be here Wednesday night, encourage other members to be here Wednesday night and the following Wednesday night so that we can fully, fully inform the congregation. And that's what the elders are trying to do. 
to fully inform the congregation of the scriptural obligation that we have as a congregation toward the lost sheep, to bring them home and to do everything we can to do that, and to do it the way God would have us to do it, to do it lovingly and patiently, but nonetheless to do it. And the tragedy in the church today is that for the most part, and I say that with confidence but not with joy, it is not being done in congregation after congregation after congregation. It is the forgotten commandment. But think about that very phrase, commandment, and think about the word forgotten. How do we forget a commandment of God? We cannot. We cannot. So before we get into the lesson, I wanted to mention that we will do that, the Lord willing, the next two weeks and hopefully see a happy conclusion to the efforts that are being made, not just by the elders, but hopefully by all of you through our visitation efforts to admonish, to encourage, and to bring home. One precious soul has recently returned to her first love, and we thank God for that, our Amanda Leslie. And we want to continue to remember her, and we want to pray that others will come home to their first love through these efforts. We introduced last time the withdrawal of fellowship as taught in the Bible. We've alluded to it in the other lessons in this series. We've alluded to it as the final effort to restore the erring, to restore the wayward, keeping in mind that it's not the only form that discipline takes. And we've talked about that. Teaching is discipline. Discipline begins at the earliest point in the life of a Christian because teaching is discipline. Also visits to the wayward, admonitions to them to, to come home to their first love. That's discipline. And so let us also never lose sight of the motivation for that discipline as we have discussed it. Remember, Revelation 3.19, we talked about it last week. As many as I love, I rebuke or reprove and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. As many as I love, as many as I love, I correct, I discipline, the Lord said through John the Apostle in Revelation 3.19, writing there to the church at Laodicea. And in light of this, we accurately say that withdrawal of our fellowship from a wayward child of God, a wayward member of the Lord's body who will not repent, is an extension of love. Please understand and appreciate the truthfulness of that statement. Withdrawal of fellowship is an extension of our love. Last time we looked at the example of 1 Corinthians 5 and the, the results of the discipline that was exercised by the church at Corinth toward an individual, a brother who was living in an adulterous situation. He was living in a sinful situation, living with his father's wife, the indication likely being his stepmother. And in that connection, we noted the attitude towards sin that has to characterize us as members of the body of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the church of Christ. It is, it's an attitude not of tolerance, and it cannot be an attitude of the tolerance of sin. And the example of First and Second Corinthians we studied last time makes that abundantly clear. But we also dealt with the scriptural definition of withdrawal as the Lord 
gave it and pointed out that it's an effort to win back the lost. It's not an effort to drive them away. It is not an excommunication. It is to be carried out by all of the members, not just a few, if it's to have the full effect. And we have also seen the design or the purpose of withdrawal, the immediate design, the initial and the overriding purpose is to bring that lost child home, to bring him or her to the realization of sin in the life and to cause repentance. But it is also to keep the church pure, 1 Corinthians 5, 6. Do you not know, Paul asked the church at Corinth, that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And so sin cannot be ignored. And so today, I want us to deal with some specific actions that are involved in withdrawal of fellowship and attitudes that we must maintain toward the withdrawn. Actions and attitudes. And then, in the second part of our study, I want us to answer a very important question. A very important question from the scriptures. The question is this. Can a person withdraw himself and thus eliminate the need for action on the part of the church? Is it the case that those who have left us in terms of no longer assembling with us that there's no need for action on our part because we cannot withdraw from them because they have already withdrawn from us. That perhaps is the most prevalent objection that one hears when this subject is discussed. Well, we can't withdraw from someone who's already withdrawn from us. That attitude represents a total misconception of what the Bible teaches about withdrawal. That is an impossibility for an individual to withdraw from the church. And I want us to fully understand that from the scriptures. But first of all, the specific actions and the attitudes that we're to manifest toward the brother or sister from whom fellowship is withdrawn. Remember that withdrawal of fellowship comes only after exhortation after exhortation to repent. But it is not something that comes after exhortation, after exhortation, after exhortation, after exhortation, 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 and on we go until time is no more or the Lord comes again. In other words, the exhortations cannot go on indefinitely. We cannot adopt the attitude, well, as long as there's time, there's opportunity for repentance. Therefore, we will not take the scriptural action. That's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, we have one example in Titus 3 and verse 10, where Paul writes, a factious man after the first and second admonition refuse, reject. Now that, in the case of a factious man, one who is disturbing the church, is not to be allowed to do that forevermore. And the scriptures tell us that there has to come a time when withdrawal of fellowship has to occur and that our patience has an end in a sense from that standpoint. But when withdrawal does occur, we have to follow the scriptures concerning our attitudes and our actions toward the withdrawn. And there are some passages. As we go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 
that reveal this to us and remind us of what these attitudes and actions are. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 11. What about the action? In 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 11, Paul writes, But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. This is a prohibition against social interaction continuing with the withdrawn from individual as it once continued. Things have to change. The social interaction has to change. We don't sit down to a social common meal with that individual. And here, the specific is given relating to the general. In other words, the social interaction. There's a specific that is mentioned here, and that is a social meal, sitting down to eat. But obviously, the prohibition would extend to any other activity, social activity, in which I had been involved with that individual before withdrawal occurred, which I can no longer be involved with that individual after withdrawal has occurred. In other words, Paul is not saying, don't sit down and eat a common meal with that individual, but if you've been going hunting with that individual every Friday or Saturday, you keep on going hunting with him just like you always have, just don't eat with him. Well, that makes no sense. That's not what Paul is saying. He is using the specific, obviously, to teach the general, and the general being the social interaction has to change. And can we not see from the common sense standpoint why that has to change? Because if that social interaction does not change, we've taken absolutely nothing away from the individual from whom fellowship has been withdrawn. If he or she can continue to have the same kind of association that he or she had with all the members of the church after being withdrawn from versus before being withdrawn from, where's the incentive for the child to come home? to his or her first love. Paul says there has to be something that is denied. Something has to change. And he uses the specific example of eating to obviously indicate the social interaction that can no longer continue as it once did in the hope that that will bring that individual to his or her senses. And so we don't extend invitations to him to eat with us or accept them from him. Things have to change. Look at Matthew chapter 18. In Matthew chapter 18, beginning at verse 15, the Lord says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. But if he will not hear you, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you as a heathen and a tax collector. In other words, he no longer enjoys that same relationship that he once enjoyed. That's withdrawal of fellowship. And then he goes on, Assuredly, I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, verse 19, that if two of you agree on the earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. And listen to verse 20. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. There is no way for me to overstate the importance of what I have just read when it comes to how soberly we ought to take the action of withdrawal of fellowship as a congregation when it occurs. 
How many times have you heard people say regarding Matthew 18, 20, well, that means when two or three people are gathered together to worship, there am I in the midst of them. That is not the context of Matthew 18, 20. What is the context of Matthew 18, 20? The context I've just read from Matthew 18, 15 through 20 is a context of church discipline. It's the context of church discipline. Please keep that in mind and think with me again about verse 20. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, that is by my authority, in regard to what? The immediate context is in regard to church discipline. And what does Jesus say about that? I am there. I am there approving of what you are doing. You are doing it by my authority. That ought to sober the thinking of anyone who believes we can ignore what the Bible teaches about church discipline. Jesus says it is done with my authority, by my name, by my authority, and when it is done, it is as though I am there with you as you take this action. How does the Lord take that action? As many as I love, how should we take that action? As many as we love. Matthew 18, 15 through 20 is a powerful text on the very subject we are talking about, a subject that is widely ignored by the church today. And yet it wouldn't be, surely, if people could fully comprehend and take seriously, and they should be able to, what is said here in Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Withdraw yourselves. Let him be to you as a tax collector... Let him be to you as a heathen and a tax collector. That is one who is out here in the world. That's the action that is taken in love. Purge out, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, as we go back. That the individual be taken away from you, 1 Corinthians 5, 2. Not to company with him, 1 Corinthians 5, 9. And then when you look at 2, Corinthians, or 2 Thessalonians rather, chapter 3, and verse 6, in 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, Paul writes, But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that is, by his authority again, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. Thayer's Greek lexicon says of that phrase, withdraw yourselves, to hold aloof, to avoid, to abstain from familiar Company, Second Thessalonians 3.14, a few verses later, And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. You see that purpose? That he may be ashamed. That he may realize what he has lost. And that hopefully he will come home to his first love. And so, what the scriptures teach us is that we don't continue to hunt, or fish, or go bowling with the one from whom fellowship has been withdrawn. Otherwise, you have taken nothing desirable, nothing precious away from that individual. When you continue that action and withdrawal becomes an empty formality because the individual's lost nothing. At the same time, and this is so important, 
We've talked about actions now. Let's look at attitudes. Our attitudes must be as God would have them to be toward that wayward member. And what is that attitude? Go back with me to 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 15. After saying, keep, do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed, he adds, yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Admonish him. Take every opportunity to admonish him to come back. Always leave the door open for his return to the truth. And he or she should know that our action of having no company with the individual is not out of haughtiness. It's not out of self-righteousness. It's out of love for him, for the wayward, and from humble obedience to what the scriptures teach us we must do. Now, what if the one withdrawn from is a member of one's fleshly family? Well, in this case, in many cases, complete disassociation is impossible. It's, it's pretty much impossible for a husband to be separated from a wife completely and have no company with the wife or a wife the husband and other family relationships. And so there are obligations, and we've mentioned this before, that a husband has to a wife and a wife to her husband that cannot change even when withdrawal of fellowship has occurred with a family member. But admonitions should continue. Everything should be done by the husband, by the wife, by the son, by the daughter, whoever is the faithful and whoever are the faithful toward the unfaithful member of that family. The faithful family member should not act in such a way as to indicate in any way a condoning of the sin. In fact, they must make abundantly clear that they do not condone the sin, even though certain relationships may have to continue based upon the nature of those relationships. But even when family is involved, something has to change. And if nothing changes, then chances are nothing will change in terms of the attitude of the wayward member in terms of coming home to his or her first love. Is what I'm talking about an easy thing to implement and to do? It's heartbreaking. Absolutely heartbreaking. But it's done out of love and for the welfare of the soul of the individual. Now, quickly in our last part of the lesson, can, I, can a person withdraw himself? Can a person withdraw himself and eliminate the need for action by the church? I don't know how many times I've heard that. I don't know how many times I've had that said to me. Well, we don't need to withdraw from so-and-so. He's been gone for a good while now. Well, for one thing, he shouldn't be able to be gone for a good while without admonitions being given and without efforts being made culminating in withdrawal. But many times the contention is we can't withdraw from someone because he's already left us. That's a scriptural impossibility. To say that a person can withdraw himself shows a misunderstanding, as I said earlier, of what withdrawal is. It also shows a misunderstanding of what fellowship is. You see, withdrawal, as we've already said, is discipline. Withdrawal is discipline. It's not the act of leaving. Withdrawal is discipline itself. It's corrective in nature. It's designed to bring about repentance. Well, let me ask you then. 
Does a person discipline himself when he leaves the congregation or stops attending? Can we say, well, so-and-so has left us, he's disciplined himself. Well, he's done anything but that, hasn't he? So obviously, withdrawal is discipline on the part of the church toward the individual or the individuals who are in sin. I've mentioned the illustration before about supposedly the man who was withdrawn from got up and said, I'm sorry to hear you withdrawn from me, but I'll stay here and do the best I can to keep things going. Well, he didn't understand what withdrawal was, did he? Withdrawal didn't mean the congregation was leaving him. It meant the congregation was disciplining him. Withdrawal is discipline. The many to the few, not the few to the many. And 1 Corinthians 5 makes that clear as well. But what about fellowship? If one contends that one can withdraw himself or herself and thus has become immune to discipline, it also shows a misunderstanding of what fellowship is. There might be some merit to that argument if fellowship involved four hours a week. If the only time we had fellowship with one another is when we're here in this building for a maximum of four hours, Bible study Sunday morning, worship, Sunday night worship, and Wednesday night, if that was the totality of fellowship, then there might be some merit to the argument, well, he's withdrawn his own fellowship because he's not here for those four hours. But that's not what fellowship involves. Fellowship is a joint participation Joint sharing, it is association, and it is not confined to four hours a week, is it? Not confined to when we're in the church building. It's 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I'm even in fellowship with brethren I've never met in my life. And so are you. So are you. Because our fellowship extends to all those of like precious faith, and fellowship is 24-7. It's not just four hours a week. Another point in this connection would be this. If a person can withdraw himself from a congregation and then make himself immune to any disciplinary action, then all that any impenitent sinner would have to do to avoid it is to leave when he sees it coming. This fellow living with his stepmother at Corinth, when the church at Corinth got the letter from Paul and he heard about the letter and realized they're getting ready to withdraw from me, I better get out of here. So I'm going to go over to the church on the other side of Corinth. And if there was no church on the other side of Corinth, and I don't believe there was, he could have said, well, we're going to start another congregation over there on the other side of Corinth. We need a congregation over there, and I see this is coming, and so goodbye, I'm withdrawing myself. And then you have, in effect, disarmed the Lord of the very procedure that he told the church to carry out. That's an impossibility. That's an impossibility. We know that the Lord's way will work. And the scriptures do not in any way support the idea that a person withdraws himself. Otherwise, if he does... The Lord's way really doesn't work. But we know that it does. We know that it does. If we go back to 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 6. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves or withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly 
and not according to the tradition which he received from us. Now think about it. From everyone who walks disorderly. That term disorderly means out of the ranks. Often true of soldiers, irregular, inordinate, deviating from the prescribed order or rule. Thayer's Greek lexicon defines it. Listen to it. Out of the ranks, as often of soldiers. And so if one who has ceased to assemble with the saints, when one who is away from the assembly, when one is away from the assembly, where is he? Is he walking disorderly? Is he out of the ranks? That's the meaning of the word. He's AWOL, isn't he? He's AWOL. Does the military discipline only those who are still with their units and are disobeying orders there? But if they determine to go AWOL, they're no longer subject to the army or whatever military branch it is to the discipline. Well, we know better. AWOL makes it even worse, doesn't it, if anything? Well, these people, tragically, are absent without the Lord. They're AWOL in that sense. But we need to make sure that they know they're not absent without our love. And that we love them enough to do everything we can to bring them home. Paul says we're to withdraw from them. And they cannot withdraw from us. Withdrawal is the Lord's way. It is not pleasant. But it's done out of love and concern for the soul and out of a desire to do all of God's will. And as members of the body of Christ, we all, all have an obligation to uphold the action when it is taken according to the scriptures. And failing to do so, failing to do so places us in opposition to God. I make no apologies for that statement because it's true. When we fail to do what God would have us do, then we place ourselves in opposition to God. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I, the Lord said, in the midst of them. What's the context? Discipline. And so we have to. We have to do what God would have us do. And every member should support the action so that hopefully the action will have the desired effect. And what is that? That the precious souls will repent. God desires that all repent. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. What about you this morning? Are you in a situation where you need to repent? Where you need to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? If you're outside of Christ, we plead with you to do that. To act upon your faith by repenting of your sins, confessing Jesus to be the Christ, and being buried with Him in baptism for the remission of sins. And if you're here today as one who has wandered away, who has sinned in a way to bring reproach upon the blood-bought body of Christ, the church, Come home to your first love and repentance and let us rejoice with you and with the angels of heaven 
over one precious soul that repents versus the 90 and 9 who need no repentance. As we stand to sing, will you come?